I would look out at the city and realized we were living in a period where we got to see what a city would like if it was all hardware. It was such awakening of how cities are inert without people. And there was none of the life of the city. And it was brutal. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, David Brockwell talks about designing restaurants, stage sets, and buildings. I think my interest started out on how people come together and how spaces encourage us to interact with each other. David Rockwell's work is very theatrical, literally and figuratively. He has designed numerous Broadway and television sets, and the restaurants, hotels, airport terminals, and other projects he's designed tend to be visual and spatial heartstoppers. David is the founder and president of the Rockwell Group, which has offices here in New York, as well as Los Angeles and Madrid. Two of his latest projects are theater-related. He designed the sets for the recent revival of the Broadway show Into the Woods, and his company designed the new Civilian Hotel in Manhattan's Theater District. He's here to talk about those projects as well as his remarkable life and career. David Rockwell, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much. Great to be here. In person. Yes, in person. David, I understand you're a collector of kaleidoscopes and that you started collecting them when you were a little boy. Why kaleidoscopes? Well, I think I was initially attracted to them because I love things that move. I've always been fascinated by how things can reconfigure, probably driven by a life that was reconfigured a lot. I'm sure, you know, looking back, the fact that we moved around a lot as a young boy, um, as a young man got me interested in new things. And then as I started to really fall more in love with kaleidoscopes and have a chance to analyze it, and I just want to say I think designers, in my opinion, do that a lot. They find what they love and then look in the rearview mirror and able to find how things line up and what they mean. But my attraction was, and still is, how they take things that are familiar to us and then jumble those to create entirely new pictures with the simple arrangement of lenses and objects in the end of that frame, I think they are the most amazing analog changeable pictures uh, that I, I still love. I understand you have quite a few original types of kaleidoscopes. I think you have about 75 at this point, and I read that one operates with a puff of air and feathers. Is that true? It is true. And kaleidoscopes, in many cases from the outside, don't show how sophisticated they are on the inside um, because it's a case where what is inside matters. And probably that's some of the things that attracted me as well because in in the building world, I'm much more interested in how things engage an audience and how they behave than how they look initially, at least as a first way in. So this particular kaleidoscope has a small plastic, actually it's a fabric piece that you squeeze air into into this beautiful cast glass um, container that has feathers in it. And you look through the, the kind of mirror assembly. And what I do when I show it to people is have them look through it before they see what's doing it. Because it's a total kind of magical illusion. It is. It sounds amazing. David, you were born in Deal, New Jersey. No. Okay. I was actually born in Chicago, Illinois. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I was born uh, as the youngest of five boys. Yes, I know that part. In downtown Chicago. When did you move to Deal? When I was four. Okay. I uh, think I think that uh, we'll keep that in just as is because, you know, it's important to show that we sometimes make mistakes here at Design Matters. <laughs> and it's an interesting thing because Chicago was such a brief stay for me, but there are certain loyalties I have to that city based on family and, and um but yeah, so we moved to the Jersey Shore quite young, and that's where I first experienced uh, many things, including theater. Right. Now, I believe that your dad passed away when you were two. Yeah. So that was when you were in Chicago. Correct. Do you yeah. have any memory of that? 
No, I have photographs and I have stories from family members of a family that's very different than the one I was brought up in um, because my mom remarried um, my dad who really raised me, my stepdad. And so uh, as the youngest, I got a very different experience than my oldest brother, for instance. But when I've gone back to Chicago, I've gone back to where we lived and um, done quite a bit of work in Chicago, and it is one of my favorite cities. So I suppose there's deep memories that I don't have real access to yeah. that sort of come alive when I'm there. And pull you in. Your mother co-founded a community theater, and you and your four older brothers all worked on the shows. And you acted, played music, you worked on the sets. All four of your brothers were stagehands. You've said you were seduced by all the preparation and was intrigued by how the theater energized your very sleepy suburb. What was most fascinating to you about that sort of awakening? What was most seductive was how incredibly inclusive it was, that it was for the time that it was happening, it activated every part of the community. And when I say sleepy, it's Deal, New Jersey is a beautiful, beautiful place with lots of big homes where almost all um, kind of entertainment happened within these big homes. So there wasn't a lot of public realm. There was the beachfront and a beautiful beach club. But the community theater somehow got everyone to want to participate. And it was in our little elementary school, which I actually took my daughter back to not too long ago. And I couldn't believe the difference between my memory of these incredible productions and the simplicity of what it actually was. I think it was an an early experience for me of something that I found inspiring in my work, and that is the live experience of creating something like theater takes months or years of preparation. Community theater is more months. Broadway shows can be years, and buildings can be decades. But ultimately, we experience them as a live in real-time experience. So it really felt like time stood still. It was a, you know, amazing time with my mom. It just was a very powerful experience that um, was my first exposure to people coming together to create something that was ephemeral, but yet had long-lasting memories. You've said in several interviews that your childhood was very much like the Christopher Guest film Waiting for Guffman. And I'm wondering if if you can um, share why. Well, it's such an interesting question because I just met Christopher Guest. Lucky you. It was incredible. I didn't quite know what to say uh, because I think he's such an incredible genius. And he was so smart and in the moment and present. And I think the thing about Waiting for Guffman is... It makes fun of everyone in such an honest, playful way where everyone's included in on the joke. And, you know, my um, mom and Larry Lowenstein, who was the director of The Deal Players, they were intent on creating the best work. Now, whether they really were quite as delusional as they are in Waiting for Guffman and Thing, I don't think they actually thought it was going to go to Broadway. But, you know, the dentist in town wanted to be in the show. And... uh, That's kind of the overlap of the truth of Waiting for Guffman, I think, is quite beautiful. But he does it in such a hilariously funny way. Yeah. Um, So it's that line between fiction and reality. Right. (laughs) I I can't come away from a Christopher Guest film without just feeling sort of happy about being alive, just because the the movies make you laugh in such a self-referential way. Totally. The house that that you grew up in had, in, in before you moved to Mexico, had a detached garage with a second story that became your laboratory of sorts. And you collected safety cones and roller blinds and wind chimes and used them to make what you've referred to as Rube Goldberg-like installations, Halloween haunted houses, elaborate lemonade stands. What did your family think of this? You know, I don't know. I think they were happy I wasn't doing it in the house. <laughs> I think they, they certainly encouraged it. They didn't uh, squash any of those instincts. By the way, it's the same thing when I think about my experience at Syracuse University, where in many cases I was an outlier in terms of the kind of modernist program that was being taught. 
but I felt like I was encouraged just enough. And um, I was given enough lateral movement to try and craft kind of my own point of view. I think my parents weren't happy about it when it started to spill over into the lawn. And then we had a big front lawn where the installations would continue. So I think they they quite liked keeping it contained. And it was a, it was a garage with a second floor space that no one else was interested in. And I, I think that's interesting is looking for spaces that are outside of the norm. And I think that's something I've continued. When, when I first started out as an architect in New York, almost all the spaces I had to work with were upstairs or downstairs because of the real estate reality of New York, which really created a lifelong fascination with stairs for me in architecture. I did a small TED talk on stairs. I think stairs and theater are fascinating because they are the transition from one piece to another. So I think having that second floor space where I could dream and play away from worrying about making a mess um, was really helpful. And I'm grateful I had that. That's so interesting what you say about stairs, because as I was looking at so much of your work, so much of it has a transition into something else, Yeah, which I kind of feel like stairs and landings often are. I read that some of your favorite childhood memories involve theater and hospitality, and one of the most memorable uh, was seeing a production of Boris Aronson's musical of Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway starring the great Zero Mostel, which was your first experience of a Broadway musical. What was that like for you? It was totally life-changing. The day included um, coming into New York with my parents and my brothers. It actually was after Zero Mostel left, and it was with Herschel Bernardi, which, you know, I've gone back to kind of look at what theater was at because it, it played for so long. The experience of walking through Times Square, having my first meal at a New York City restaurant, which... It was Schraff's, right? It was Schraff's. Oh. Which... Moment of silence. <laughs> so amazing, right? And I've gone back to research the menu and... And there was something about being together with other people in these instant communities that get formed in New York, which is, I think, one of the great things about the city uh, that's been a lifelong love of mine. And then seeing Boris Aronson and Jerome Robbins and Sheldon Harnick and Jerome Box collaboration, telling a story I didn't know anything about, was life-changing for me to see how music and design could come together and be so powerful. And it was something I um, was pretty obsessed with and researched Boris's work. I researched Chagall's work. And when I went to Mexico, which happened shortly thereafter, uh, I took a lot of that experience with me and kind of dissected it. And it really has been a, an extraordinary gift to have that experience, including later in life, becoming good friends with Boris Aronson's widow, Lisa Aronson. Yeah, I want to ask you about that in a bit, because I know there's some interesting symmetry to that. Uh, so, but yeah, it, it's, even now when I go to the theater, I went to the opening of the Met Opera, Medea, which was incredible. And just when you sit down among 1,500 strangers and the music begins, and there's an opportunity to connect with that story and that story to connect with an audience, I think it's just a beautiful world of possibilities, and that's when that opened up for me. My first Broadway musical, my dad took me to see A Chorus Line, the original performances, the original production. And I remember being in the audience, and I was a teenager, a young teenager, and remember when they were talking about tits and ass, and I was like, oh, my God, they're <laughs> cursing, they're cursing. And I was so, like, scared and embarrassed. It was such an interesting moment. I'll never forget it. Do you have memories about that design? Um, I just remember the sort of line of the actors and actresses sort of singing when they do that long line across the stage. But that's really pretty much it. And and the costumes. Yeah. And the costumes, the great, great costumes. Yeah, I mean, that was an incredibly impactful design in that it held back. M Michael Bennett is one of my idols, and it held back Robin Wagner's set, which was a mirrored wall. Right. Could rotate at the end to that gold starburst that went with the costume. So it, it saved 
that big moment for the very end. Yeah. Um, but it was mostly a line on the floor. Right. It, it amazingly lit. And the first Broadway show that used a computer board for lighting. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah. When I saw... Um, Rent, and when they open the second act with Seasons of Love, it reminded, took me back to that moment of yeah. the chorus line. Yeah. You mentioned it already, but when you were 12, you and your family moved to Guadalajara, Mexico. Why Guadalajara? My dad um, sold his business and uh, was an avid reader and had been reading about uh, living in Mexico. And at 12, it's just impossible or it was impossible for me to um, to understand the depth of what that change was going to be. It was a trip. We were going to move. So we got in a station wagon and drove to Guadalajara, Mexico, which was really like turning my entire world inside out in what turned out to be such an importantly great way um, because there were so many things about it that were fascinating and different. And um, so... I think the reason was he was interested in a different quality of life. Um, and there was something about both the climate and the culture that interested him. And it was just my my mom, my dad, and one brother. Three other brothers were already in, out of college or in college. So we just packed up and moved to a place where no one spoke English. And Did you learn Spanish? I was fluent within about four or five months. That's incredible. Yeah, at that age, you just absorb it. Do you still, can you still speak Spanish? I can still speak Spanish, but of course the vocabulary is, yeah. is weak. The accent is good. I'm good for like two sentences if I plan it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the theater in you. Yeah. <laughs> you said this about the experience, and I want to read something that you wrote. It was like entering Oz. I loved watching the drama of urban interaction, how people shaped and energized a space, the quality of the light and the tone of the sky. The street was where so much of the activity took place. I began to notice how the theater of the everyday related to actual theater, and I began cobbling together an index in my mind about how people connect in activated spaces. David, I read that this is when you began diagramming and analyzing space and transition and modulation and interaction. At that point, did you have a sense of what you wanted to do professionally? Was this the beginning of your understanding of what you wanted to be in the future? No, not yet. At this point, I think I still was very interested in um, piano. And I never studied as seriously as I'm now studying because yes. I have that that privilege now. I loved piano. I loved drawing. I loved sketching. The interest in becoming an architect evolved over the next couple of years living in Mexico where there was so much going on in the world of architecture. Um, my exposure to these bold cast concrete buildings, the spaces in between, as I talk about in the book, between the bull ring and the mercado, this in, in one of the great markets uh, in the world is in Guadalajara. I think it's 400,000 square feet, and it's a kind of modernist 60s structure, but underneath it, it is the most amazing sort of minimalist, maximalist installation of everything you could imagine. Wow. So that's when I started to diagram spaces between buildings, and I think it was also my interest in choreography through my mom, and I started to think about outdoor indoor spaces. All of the restaurants were indoors, outdoors. Even the configuration of the homes, they were all pretty much walled off, but most of the public life happened in the streets. Soccer happened in and around outdoor spaces. And I guess I just knew there were things about it that uh, I thought were extraordinary, and I, I tried to understand them spatially. And then I got to know um, a girl whose brother was an architect and spent some time with him, and um, it just emerged as an interesting intersection of the things I was most interested in learning. Your dad died when you were two, and then your mom passed away when you were 15. How, how did you manage losing both your parents at such a young age? Yeah, losing my mom was very hard. We were incredibly close, so that was... That was pretty devastating. And um, I suppose maybe I'm lucky enough to have some 
inner drive or some optimism. There are things certainly I took from her that my love of theater is directly from her. But it was it was a tough couple of years, and um, there were great friends in Mexico who helped me through it. And I also I think as I look back on it, there was um, you know the enormous change of living in Mexico just got me on a journey of kind of discovering things. And um, so as the year or two passed, and for a year or two, I was really pretty paralyzed about that. I started to think about what's next. And I felt going back to the East Coast, I felt like coming to New York, where my mom had been from. I had two brothers there. I think the importance of the moment, the importance of the time my mom and I did spend together kind of moved me in the direction of realizing how precious that time is. So that was a big part of the decision to come back east. And I went to Syracuse University, yeah, which was close enough to New York that I could come in and see my brothers on weekends and go to shows. And if I liked the show, second act at the next day. And I do think of all the people in my life, my mom would have been the happiest and most surprised with the fact that I found a way to merge the various things that I loved. I mean, it's, I think it's, uh, you know, kind of an unlikely set of things, but I think she would, um, she would get that. I think she helped create that foundation. I think she'd be proud. Um, you studied at the School of Architecture at Syracuse University, and I understand that in your second year, you got in trouble for designing a townhouse with two different entry sequences, along with narratives about who lived there and why they'd made the choices they had. Why did you get in trouble for this? Well, I think part of being an architecture school is getting in trouble. I think if you're okay. not, I think <laughs> if you're not provoking a reaction to get in trouble, you're not doing the right thing. But so it was a figure ground study that was uh, a vertical townhouse. And I, I, the goal of the exercise was to look at how two sets of compositions, you could divide a tall, like Raymond Abrams' amazing buildings, take a slice and divide it into two different pieces. And I spent the first couple weeks of the project writing the backstory of the two people who would live there and what they did and why they were there. And the teacher was not pleased. The professor was not pleased. And in studio visits, he would challenge that I was avoiding the process of solving it. And um, I've just always felt like backstory is a better way to it, – it, it's, it's not better or worse, but it's, it's my process. And it's my studio's process is to try and develop a rich kind of backstory. So like a narrative, right? A narrative, yeah. yeah which – in theater, of course, you don't want the narrative, the visual story doesn't want to tell the same story as the actor. It wants to set the story like a jewel, a background, or a you know, setting for a jewel. But having a, a, a narrative, I think, allows you to then suggest specifics along the way. So it was very helpful for me, and it ended up, other than the fact that I was working all night the night before and cut my finger and dripped a little blood on the white foam core. And I did have a moment thinking, do I incorporate that into the narrative or do I just replace that piece of foam core? <laughs> what did you do? Uh, I replaced the foam core. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you got in trouble again during your senior thesis. You went off the approved list of buildings and subjects and wrote about Times Square. I'm wondering what made you decide to do that and what you wrote about. Well, it was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, I did write about Times Square which I had collected photographs over the years of. And what I wrote about is an outdoor room defined by information, which I actually think is a very provocative idea that has relevance in many other applications. So I looked at the scale of the communication and how it's different at the ground floor, at the mid-level, and at the super scale. And I looked at the evolution of uh, that communication since the beginning of electric light replacing gas and the great Rudy Stern who passed away who wrote Let There Be Neon was someone I became friendly with in school. I became friendly with Jules Fisher who's one of the most extraordinary lighting designers in the world in theater. So I networked people who I was interested in learning from and I thought 
much like learning from Las Vegas, which kind of investigated something that had previously not been investigated, I thought there was something about the enduring quality of Times Square and its constant change and its inspiration for artisan and craftsmen that was that was worth studying. But it was nip and tuck about whether that was going to be approved. And, <laughs> as and, a but I assume it was. It was. <laughs> After graduating from Syracuse and studying abroad at the Architectural Association in London, you worked as an intern for lighting designer Roger Morgan. And you've said that working for him helped you realize you could pursue and combine your passions for architecture and theater. How, how did he help you understand that? My first job with Roger was actually when I was still in school and in a summer internship in 78, I believe. And I got that job through a recommendation of Jules Fisher, who introduced me to him. And Roger was uh, is an amazing uh, theatrical lighting designer, but also a theater consultant. So he needed architectural draftsmen. So while I was there to learn about theater, he thought I was there to draw pipe details. Trojan horse. Be useful. So there was a, it was an interesting contract, and um, and he was the most amazing teacher. Really, just he is, still is an extraordinary man who um, the show he was working on at the time was Crucifer of Blood, which was a Sherlock Holmes drama with Paxton Whitehead and Glenn Close in her theatrical debut. And I was really a glorified coffee getter, but I was there to draft as well. So I had I had some work to do. And then I went to work for him after I graduated. I learned a lot about collaboration. And it's one of the things I talk about in the book drama is ensemble. Because in theater, you have a number of people who are very focused on one element. Go back to Fiddler on the Roof, you know, Jerome Robbins' movement with Boris Aronson's design, with the costumes and the lighting, all created something where everyone is bringing their best game to the table. And I think collaboration and architecture can move more into I'm the architect, you're the engineer, and there's no real crossover. So I think ensemble was something I learned from Roger very clearly. Also, uh, I think my experience there convinced me that theater was not for me for the time being. It was interesting to be a part of it. I love being a part of it. I learned, and I, I just thought I want to go back and focus on architecture. You also worked for William Ginsburg, which was an and William Ginsburg Associates, which is an engineering firm that was the go-to newspaper plant designer in 1975. You've done a lot of research. <laughs> I try, <laughs> and you're so interesting. It's it's easy. Yeah. Um, you said you knew nothing about newspaper plants, but had been interested in how things moved and connected since you were a kid. How did that? specific experience influence you and and where you were going to go next? Well, I mean, you can look back at the interest in the Rube Goldberg-like constructions. Everything I made in that second floor in Deal, New Jersey, was about movement. So the rollers on the floor were to sit on top of doors, which were movable stages, and um, and that's true about kaleidoscopes. Um, I was always taking them apart and seeing how they work and putting them back together. Did you ever have failure at putting things back together. My, I've sort of stopped taking things apart because I never can put them back together. I, I've often had failure, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not then, the you only have to, one. then you have to make something out of the loose parts <laughs> right. or just move on. <laughs> right. Pretend it's back together and works even though it doesn't. Yes. Working for William Ginsburg, who was my best friend's father, John Ginsburg, who I met first year in college, it's one of those things when you're an intern, when you're starting out, there's the thing you're asked to do, and then there's all the things you can learn while you're doing it. It's been interesting now where we have a lot of interns who work for us, and I find the ones that are successful are the ones that are looking beyond what they're just doing. They're curious. There's a built-in curiosity. And so when, when it came to newspaper plans, I was kind of fascinated with the simplicity of the box of the plant, because it wasn't about what the thing looked like from the outside again, but it was about the machinery and the process and sequencing. And and I thought it was a, a kind of beautiful system of pieces that was interesting and inspiring. 
You've stated that when you moved to New York City, you realized that its buildings weren't just buildings. They were collections of many different lives. Was this when you realized that you weren't only interested in structures and spaces, you were also interested in people and how they were impacted by structures and spaces? I I suppose that's true. Um, I think my interest started out on how people come together and how spaces encourage us to interact with each other. But moving to New York, the the revelation you're talking about, which was surprising and still amazes me when I leave town and come back, is the verticality of New York is um, really so many lives uh, living within one structure. And it puts extra, I think, importance on the public realm to be open and public and and, um, it's probably the thing that uh, led me initially to be most interested in the ground floor of the city. Mm. And the majority of our work early on was in and around the ground floor, which is the, the, the extension of the public realm. While you were working, you were offered the chance to design a house from the ground up as a freelance project, which, along with a restaurant project, gave you the impetus to start your own firm in 1984. What was that like for you? Were you scared? Were you nervous? Were you excited? All of the above? There was no no fear. It was just pure energy and adrenaline and, and luck. And um, actually, I was working uh, for another architect designing a uh, club that was a version of the Crazy Horse Saloon coming to New York. And for those who don't know, the Crazy Horse Saloon is this very avant-garde, projection-based, long-term historical strip show in Paris. Um, There's been documentary films about it, so sort of new ideas. And I was the project architect, so I went to Paris to research it. I was 23 or 24. It opened up. The room was beautiful. The show was on a level of terrible that's hard to describe. <laughs> <laughs> so you asked if I ever taken anything apart and not put it together. <laughs> so I could still today, though, sketch the carpet pattern of the sconces or the, the, the wall because it was so hands-on. And through that, um, I was offered a restaurant called Le Paragore. And actually, the person who hired us, George Breguet, who was a a legend just passed away. And it was a restaurant that had been around forever. It was getting ready for a food event and wanted to know, could I renovate it in four weeks? And since I had no fear, I brought in a friend of mine who ran the scene shop at La Mama and we renovated the restaurant in four weeks. And that led to an offer to do Sushi Zen, which was my first restaurant and this house. And um, so I borrowed space from a, a, a friend of mine had one employee. So no, I, w- I wasn't afraid. I wasn't sensible. A little more fear might have been a good idea, but it was just all curiosity and excitement. Yeah. I, I started a business when in my when I was in my 20s. And I look back at that time and think, who was that person? And why was I not more afraid? I think something happens when you're in your 20s. I think you still have that sense of immortality and I can do anything. It's only now in my 60s that I'm like, hmm, maybe, I, maybe not. I totally agree. <laughs> the way I look at that, though, is when you have nothing to lose. Right. And and I think that's one of the things I try to replicate over and over again in our studio is taking risks because being safe is, I think, creatively death. I yeah. think, you know, you, you have to keep reinventing and pushing. One of the projects that really brought you quite a lot of notoriety was the design of the restaurant Nobu in New York City in 1994. Um, you've since gone on to design over 20 Nobu restaurants as well as Nobu hotels around the world. What do you attribute the success of your long-term collaboration with Nobu Matsuhat Hisa? First of all, it is such a, an incredible gift. Um, and it's so rare, as you know, to be able to kind of iterate a vocabulary over time. With, But Nobu is something I pursued. I, um, I was working for Meals on Wheels, which I'm now on the board of. Yes. And I was designing an event at the seaport called the Feast of the Many Moons. And I was on a ladder <laughs> lashing moons together. I had this beautiful 
moonscape. And part of, since I was a volunteer, is I got to try all the food. We had completed Vong for Jean-Georges Vongerich. It was his first restaurant in New York. I have very fond memories. Uh, it was one of my favorites. Absolute favorite. So, and then I tried at this Feast of the Many Moons, <clears throat> Nobu Matsuhisa's rock shrimp. And so I pursued the project through Drew Naporent, who I knew in a little bit, and he introduced me to um, Nobu Matsuhisa and to Robert De Niro. Those were the three partners. And um, I interviewed with both of them. It was a chance to, I mean, I really think of Nobu as a kind of brother. It gave me such momentum in thinking about backstory and looking at his food and his history and trying to create something that, um, as he wanted to do, was a Japanese restaurant that didn't trigger all the visual clues of a traditional Japanese restaurant, no tablecloths, that in some ways was part of reinventing luxury because when it opened in 94, I think, there were no three-star restaurants with no tablecloths. It wasn't a vocabulary that people were familiar with. I was fully in about engaging in any way with him. And I think the reason it's endured is it was very successful. And I continued to work with him as we did other Nobus to still work with um, the inspiration of what he does, but not translate it exactly the same way. And I know as a chef, that's what he does as well. So I think there was just a real meeting of the minds, and it's something I'm incredibly grateful for. You've said that part of what gives you the ability to have the many long-term client relationships you have is that you allow them to have affairs if they want. So can you elaborate? Well, I think one of the keys to a long-term relationship, and there's so many of them that are notable in theater, Hal Prince and Boris Aronson, the seminal Sondheim musicals um, were all done together. But in my world, if Nobu is in London and um, is doing a hotel and wants to do it with David Collins, who's very talented, you have to sort of tolerate it and embrace it. And if you hold on too tight, you kind of squish the energy out of a situation. And the same is true in all the building work we're doing. We're, we're doing um, a project right now for Johns Hopkins, it's a fantastic experience. And as they get to other buildings, if they want to talk to me about other architects who might be able to do pieces or parts of the whole building, I think that's something that you have to learn to kind of grow that ability to not hold on too tight. It's very big of you. <laughs> Since the start of your business... You haven't asked me if it drives me crazy yet, though. Ah, does it drive you crazy? <laughs> Not totally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so jealous. I, I really admire that you you have some sensibility about, about allowing people to do it. I'm so territorial. <laughs> um, since the start of your business in 1984... And, and this is really now just focusing on some of the restaurant work you've done. I want to talk about so much more. But you've become one of the most coveted restaurant designers in the world. In addition to working with Nobu, you've worked with Bobby Flay, as you mentioned, Jean-Georges Van der Richten, Danny Meyer, Melba Wilson, Barry Steinlicht. You've been included into the James Beard Foundations of Who's Who. One thing that really struck me was that you said that the design of a restaurant is as important as the food. And I'm wondering if you still believe that, and, and if you can talk a little bit about, if so, why? Well, I say that for maybe not the most obvious reasons, because I think in some cases, just having come back from Rome, the restaurants we gravitated to are the ones that were designed over time. Collection of artwork that's been traded for pasta dishes, Al Moro, for instance, which is this you know, great tavern. The design was never highlighted or in italics designed, but the design, I think, has to do with smells and senses and where is the kitchen. Design is, can the food get to the table warm? Um, design is, when you're sitting down, what are you looking at and who else do you see? So I do think that in the world of restaurants, the key element is a connection between the philosophy of the design and the food. Mm. It's like the difference between a dive and a dump. Yes. Is a dive got there intentionally. 
Right. Ah, well, yeah, that because that was my next question. What about the dives of the world? Yeah. That if they're done well, it's intentional. And if there's a point of view about food and, you know, I, I, I think about um, McHale's in the theater district, which was a great watering hole with these classic, you know, whiskey glasses, old patinaed bar. And it was really about the environment fitting the mood and the food and the there are many chefs who will totally disagree with the design as important as the food. But, you know, it's one of the things I also tell theater directors and, and restaurateurs when they say, well, I'm not sure we need that last feature you're suggesting. You know, I say, well, let's just think about it, because what if that's the key feature? What if it turns out that that was the key thing? Mm-hmm. So I think taking as wide a point of view as possible and having a real conversation about it or design and operations and service really meet is when you can have a, a good success. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, in some ways you're preaching to the converted because I do think that the design is as important as the food because if the design or the lack thereof impacts your experience of the food, a bad fork, a bad bathroom, those things are going to be things that kind of dilute the experience. And why would you want that? And think about a chair. A chair in a oh, restaurant is, yeah. you know— there's chairs that are good for 45 minutes, and there's chairs that are good for two and a half hours. And right. you want to make sure you know which of those your yeah. restaurant's going to be. Absolutely. Believe it or not, before we go to any restaurant, my wife looks online to see what the chairs look like. I, and, and that is really important to her. That's a design fan. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about the similarities and differences between designing a restaurant, a hotel, and a Broadway show. And... I want to start just by talking a little bit about some of the theater work that you've done. When you created the sets, your, I believe that your first show um, was the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It was. In 2000. Now, there are different dates online that I found. One said 1989, but most of the others said 2000, so I'm going to go with 2000. And when you did that show, I understand that you had been meeting with directors for years prior, but just sketching solutions. What were you doing with the sketches, and why did it take you so long to sort of decide that you wanted to do a show if you had been doing the sketches all along? Well, I had a a successful architecture studio and I was spending more time at theater with friends of mine in the theater looking at scenery. And I studied that as well. I'd studied scenic design post-graduating kind of ongoing basis. So I spoke to two people, Hal Prince who the phenomenal Hal Prince, who was encouraging and said, just start to sketch out what your ideas might be. And I knew it wasn't going to be a quick journey because I was going from a skill set where I had kind of proven myself over time into a different skill set. I would meet with any director I could, and there were a lot of them who were interested in meeting, sketching and talking. And what started to emerge out of that was my recognition that the real opportunity that was most interesting to me in theater was transitions. Mm. I mean, theater is one of the few art forms where things change in front of your eyes. And so the set design and the lighting designer together are kind of the cinematographer, the experience crafting where your eye goes. And uh, and I love transitions all the way going back to the Rube Goldberg constructions and things that had interested me. So it felt like very vital territory. And I would go to the theater twice a week, you know, really my whole life in New York. So it took a while to, there were a couple of false starts. I was offered a show that I started working on and that show didn't happen. And when I met with Jordan Roth, who I knew from restaurant and hotel work, and he introduced me to Chris Ashley, who's really an extraordinary director. He directed Come From Away, which is just closing. Mm. And they mentioned the Rocky Horror Show. Having lived in Mexico during those pop culture years, I wasn't familiar with it. So I went home and I rented the movie. (laughs) It's a great movie. And I went back to Chris and I said, you know, I'm not sure what the key is to making this work on stage. And he said it's about self-creation. It's the audience really creating this in their mind. And it seemed like the perfect first show. And we had a couple of false starts at different theaters. And then we went to see The Circle in the Square, which is the most non-traditional Broadway theater there is. It has no fly loft. It has very little wing space. So it required invention 
just to get from one place to another. And um, it was just the most wonderful experience ever. It was a really a, a loving, wonderful, great experience. You've written that architecture and theater are both defined by the people that inhabit and animate them. Without an audience enlivening its streets, its museums, its restaurants, a city is only an empty frame. And I think this has been reflected in the way the pandemic has affected public space. Everything for quite a long time was feeling very lonely. When did you get involved in making the kits for the New York City restaurants to be able to extend their spaces into the outdoors so that they wouldn't lose their businesses? I was editing, actually, I was at Nobu downtown March 12th, which was a day before restaurants shut down, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it was a day that they were trying to go to 50% capacity in restaurants and see if that would work. And then, of course, everything shut down. And I was in the process of editing drama for Fiden, and I would look out at the city and realized we were living in a period where we got to see what a city would like if it was all hardware. There was none of the life of the city, and it was brutal. It was such awakening of how cities are inert without people, and it, it, it sounds obvious in retrospect, but my office immediately went to remote and Zoom, and as we were brainstorming, I started to reach out to people I'd worked with around the country in different industries to sort of brainstorm about what might be some initial thought starters that would be helpful. Of course, restaurants had many challenges. There was no customers who were willing to be outside and you couldn't be outside. And to have that um, start to change, there'd have to be a safe way to get the restaurants to want to be back in business. So four seats on the sidewalk wasn't going to justify enough business to get them back open. So I started to speak to a number of friends all around the country. Melba Wilson was one of them, who's a longtime friend. And we started to think about what are little ways that could start to move things in a better direction. And outdoor dining was being talked about. And it was being talked about in a way that it might work in Europe, but it won't work in New York. And, you know, there's so much red tape and inertia. So someone in city planning suggested the way to be helpful would be to try and develop a strategy and a prototype. Just So we came up with a, a 40-page deck together with Melba Wilson and Andrew Ridgey, who was the head of the Hospitality Alliance, speaking again to restaurateurs around the country about a very simple system that would um, continue to allow the streets to function, but would be an immediate way to get at a big enough scale restaurants back in business outside in a safe way. That document made it to the city, and, and, and then we decided to make all of that open source. So everything we had drawn was made open source. And then I realized what we really needed to do was help underserved restaurants because it was it was immediately evident that, you know, there was going to be those who could afford it and those who couldn't. We looked at manufacturing techniques of ways it could be made less expensively. And we actually engaged with a lot of uh, labor from the theater world that had no work at the time. Think about those pools of labor. And we set up a, a non-for-profit 501c3 and worked with the hospitality lines in the city. Our outdoor installations were all non-for-profit for originally six restaurants, at least one in each borough, and then um, community installations, the first one in Chinatown, where 12 restaurants shared it. And it led to doing that all over the country. And it was powerful and and reigniting (laughs) that relationship with Melba, who's just extraordinary uh, and a real true New Yorker. As you are. Thank you so much for doing that. It has really helped bring the city back in ways that I don't think anybody ever expected. It's only been two years, and the city is once again, I think it's it's sort of, it's different, but it's, it's vibrant spirit itself. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and I think every moment leads to a different opportunity. I think the opportunity now is to figure out, well, 
you can't have these semi-permanent structures everywhere, which is what people have done. Mm -hmm. uh, they've sort of pushed the boundary way to the other end. Yes. And it's going to require the city coming up with ways to actually engage zoning and legislation and safety concerns and, and deal with the fact that we're not in crisis. Right. But there's something wonderful about that opportunity. And I, I think that's the next challenge. Yeah, I do. I think, you know, for now, I sort of feel like... Let them make back some of that extra money with those extra tables that yeah. they can fill. But, but yeah, I think eventually some, some sort of format <laughs> for doing you know, this so would be I, helpful. I know this is something you think about a lot, but it's also design of those things that you don't ever think needs design. Yes. So DOT approached us about when they do open streets, they do it with these not very attractive barricades that look like barricades. And we created something for them called stoops which takes the place of those barricades, but when it's open, becomes a place to sit. So I think you, we were talking early before the interview about what is design. It's kind of making the world more understandable and more mm -hmm. pleasurable and functional and taking those things that you think maybe aren't designed and realizing someone needs to design them. Yeah, absolutely. After the success of the Rocky Horror Picture Show back in 2000, that led to your appointment for the Broadway production of Hairspray two years later. Oh, my God. Can you imagine that? No. no Hairspray the musical true, with no. John Waters? Yep. Incredible. It was incredible. You won the 2016 Tony Award for Best Scenic Design for the musical She Loves Me. You have an additional six Tony Award nominations for Best Scenic Design. You have two Emmy Awards for Production Design for the Oscars in 2021 and 2010. You've worked on, I, I counted it up, about 70 theatrical productions, including designing sets for Kinky Boots, amazing, Legally Blonde, amazing, A Normal Heart, heartbreaking. At this moment in time, I believe you have designed three shows that are either on or coming to Broadway. Right. When you begin working on a new theatrical production, how does designing for an already existing story inform your work? Well, there's different ways it could inf inform the work. Um, one way, in the case of Into the Woods that we recently did, it just meant I was familiar with the material. I wasn't so familiar with previous physical designs, and I didn't think I needed to. And there were so many specifics about the experience that was designed for Encores, which was going to be a two-week run. Stephen Sondheim had just passed away. Lear de Beausonnet wanted to create this beautiful, and she put it, uh, kind of optimistic, but still having a sense of loss for us. And that was lots of research. What looks like a very simple set of 16 dimensional trees with cutouts with those three houses that are there before was weeks and weeks of research of lots of different approaches to synthesize down of the few things we could do, given that it was encores, what would we do that really set the stage? There's other previous productions, like when we did on the 20th century, hadn't seen Robin Wagner's original Tony Award-winning production. That was a case where I thought meeting with him and talking to him was helpful, which I did. Or a new project like, in the case of Take Me Out, which had been done 20 years ago, Scott Ellis and Richard Greenberg, the playwright, were very much interested in a new look at it. And so I just started from what they wanted to do. And, um, and that's, the, that's the way we approach everything. It's always trying to find uh, a kind of unique narrative that evolves, that has surprise, that helps illuminate the powerful part of the story. I just saw Into the Woods. And I have seen Into the Woods before. I actually saw Into the Woods in 2012 when the production was put on in Central Park. And I didn't think a, a set could possibly surpass being in the woods to see Into the Woods. <laughs> and yet it did. It is an extraordinary play. It was, I mean, everything about it, the acting, the directing, the music, and of course the sets— the limited run of the production in New York last year was moved to Broadway, where it's been playing to sold-out houses every night. The show was also officially extended twice, now through the end of the year, through January. And the show is often considered Stephen Sondheim's most popular musical, and its original run on Broadway began in 1987. It was also taped for PBS. It was revived once before on Broadway in 2002, 
Central Park in 2012, performed in community theaters and schools all over the world. It was even turned into a Disney film starring Meryl Streep. When you're working on a revival, how much do you consider previous productions? I try to start fresh, and you know, but I don't deny the fact when I've seen something in the past, um, you know, there might be something you learn, but I, but I don't research previous productions, and I don't try and pretend I haven't seen them. So mm-hmm. uh, with Into the Woods, there was so much fertile territory, including the orchestra being on stage. That was my next question. <laughs> and, and, and we thought that surrounding the orchestra with those playing areas would make the music even more of the story than if they were just front and center without those surrounding platforms. With a musical, you start with research, and the research is on the music, the period, the narrative, and then from all that, you have to put that aside and conjure some original vision Mm -hmm. that is gonna uh, kind of bring all that together. What's so interesting about your sets is that they are in the play. The main character, or one of the main characters, the cow. The cow is so integrated into the play that I wasn't entirely sure if the cow was a construction of the set or if the cow was a construction of the choreographer or a cow was a construction of the director. So James Ortiz, the amazing puppeteer who designed uh, Milky White, in early meetings with Lear as the director, she brought us all together so that everyone would be working from the same kind of pool of ideas. So the skeleton simplicity of the trees certainly is totally visible in James's work for Milky White, but then even extended more with the actor playing Milky White, a Kennedy, who uh, everyone is inhabiting the same thing. It's not so dissimilar from what we were talking about with restaurants, that if food and service and design come from the same point of view, you get the sense of an underlying intelligence and a kind of comfort that there's a guiding point of view. But it was so integrated. The only time I've ever felt that there was this type of successful integration of a character that was an animal, so to speak, into a play with humans was Lion King. Totally. And this reminded me of that. The integration felt so seamless and so real. Yeah that the character is brought to life yeah. in, a, in a way that was, I thought, really remarkable. I, I loved Milky White. I thought Milky White was was outstanding. Milky White's and, a total... And never to- utters a word. Total star. Yep. David, the last project I want to talk to you, with you about brings together three of your passions, theater design, restaurant design, and hotel design. And you recently created, designed, and just opened Civilian, a brand-new 203-room hotel in the theater district. And it's been described this way. An homage to the uniquely Manhattan experience of great theater and design can only be found in the breathtaking fantasy of David Rockwell's New York. It's a distinctly theatrical hotel, one that demonstrates a love for the stage and a celebration of the energy, history, and future of Broadway as nothing in New York has ever done. How's that for a review? <laughs> I, th- I think that's a mic drop right there. <laughs> <laughs> right? Congratulations. Yeah. Thank now, you. Now, I believe that this is the first project of this type, of this magnitude that you have done, where you've really looked at every single aspect, brought it all together. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what motivated you to create an entire hotel? What I can tell you is, and I don't know if this is true in your work or your observations, but I really believe in long thoughts. I think things don't happen quickly. So I've been thinking for 15 or 20 years about how there's no center to the theater community that kind of honors all the people that make it and make it so incredible. Even though in the book Drama, I talk about the importance of ephemeral and impermanence as a design strategy, recognizing things aren't necessarily permanent, The world of design in theater is it happens during the show and then it's gone. So I'd been thinking for a long time about restaurants that that are kind of watering holes that that welcome people in the theater ditch and creating a center there. And like most things, this was an opportunity that came along that was a different opportunity. The, The builder was building this hotel on 48th Street, just west of 8th. 
it was a, um, a small parking lot. And they came to me saying, we're wondering what kind of hotel this should be. And I said, well, if you want me involved, I think it shouldn't be defined by being a Marriott or a Moxie or, uh, you know, a lot of great brands, W, who all hotels we've worked for, but something that is really about its own place and that honors what makes this neighborhood with these 41 amazing theaters totally unique. And they went for it. They said, great. So that got me motivated to reach out to many other theater makers and get them excited about it, find a non-for-profit partner, and in this case, it's the American Theater Wing, which is kind of the biggest tent of the theater world. It includes everyone. And it's been just so inspiring to see, first of all, how designers want to participate. And the hotel has about a 350-piece collection called the Olio Collection that is constantly rotating and that includes commissioned pieces in spaces you'd never expect to see artwork, the elevator, the back bar, the rooms, the corridors, and the restaurant and the rooftop bar are opening, I believe, the middle of October. They haven't opened yet. I know. So it's just amazing. It's It's been one of the greatest joys of my life to bring together these three passions and to do it in a way that kind of celebrates people who are not normally celebrated and have it be ever-changing. It's like the perfect, what I tried to accomplish on the second floor of my garage and deal, but in a, in a beautifully New York way with amazing creators and collaborators. Civilian is now host to a curated collection of Broadway memorabilia, drawings, and photography, including the original polo shirt and cast from Dear Evan Hansen, a pair of red boots from Kinky Boots, they're staying, perfume (laughs) models from She Loves Me, shoes from A Kiss of the Spider Woman, from Cheetah Rivera. Oh, wow. This is the one that's going to make me get goosebumps just saying it out loud. Elphaba's hat from Wicked. Ah. Amazing. Dueling pistols from Hamilton. From the 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 original, the off-Broadway. Yeah. I believe that some of the memorabilia is in the blue room. Is that correct? Yeah. Where you used your favorite blue, which is a deep purplish hue called Urban Blue, named for the architect and set designer Joseph Urban. So what makes that your favorite? I think the depth of the color it feels infinite. It feels both incredibly rich and present and like it just goes on forever. And it is it is my favorite color. I like many different blues. Yeah, that, I was wondering about Eve Klein blue. That, yeah. that felt like it would be a blue you might like too. Um, just a couple more questions. I'm wondering if you can talk about the sketches that will be featured of the 41 theaters that make up the Broadway universe. Thank you for asking. So when I first really got on to doing the Hotel Civilian. There were a number of people I knew needed to be represented, and one was Tony Walton, who was really one of the truly greats, passed away this year. And he's not he's not only been one of the great designers, but one of the great people and supporters of the theater community. So I went to him, and I said, I'm doing this crazy thing. And he said, well, I don't know if this is helpful, but I have 12 drawings that I did uh, Broadway theaters from decades ago that I did for Playbill, let me send those over. And they were these gesture sketches that perfectly, in each case, I thought captured what was special about that theater. And of the 41 Broadway theaters, I've worked in 20 of them and had a chance to renovate one of them, the, the Hayes Theater. So I loved the idea that he had taken in what was special about each, and I asked if he would complete the collection to have 41. And he said he he would love to do that, but just didn't have the brain space to do that. And we sort of brainstormed about it. And then I reached out to every designer I knew, and they would pick the theater that was most personal to them and do a drawing of them. And those sketches are etched into one-foot diameter glass panels with a bronze surround, and they're the light fixtures. So the very fabric of the restaurant is dotted with these 41 backlit fixtures that celebrates why this couldn't happen anywhere else in the world. Wow, that's incredible. I know that you said lighting is the thing that most hotels get wrong. 
how did you approach that idea in thinking about this particular kind of lighting? Well, I'm, I am obsessed about lighting. And so one of the things that drives me crazy is bad lighting and eating in some of the great little pasta places in Rome where lighting is totally not important. Right, you use yeah, your phone now. Can you believe how many people use their phones now to look at menus? It drives me crazy. So the way, you, what we tried to do at a civilian relative lighting is start with the most critical of lighting problems, and that is lying in bed trying to read and turn the light off from the bed stand. And it's amazing how many designers get that wrong. The light isn't bright enough to read and you can't turn it off. So we started with the rooms and then went to the corridors, which are lined with beautiful custom wallpaper by Isabel and Rubel Toledo, oh. Paul Taswell, and William Ivy Long. <sighs> Isabel's dream was to design a Broadway show. Oh, well, thank you for bringing her that. Yeah, my pleasure. She said what a she, loss. Yeah. So in the case of the hall, we lit the photographs and the wallpaper. So I think the key to not having bad lighting is not th thinking of lighting as some independent alien thing, but understand what the object of the lighting is. So it all dims, including the kitchen, and we were able to make it just so. But I am, I am crazy about lighting. You've stated that you'd like to design an opera house that doesn't hide so much of what it takes to stage an opera. Right. And you'd like to design an Olympics opening ceremony. Right. Do you have any sense of what you might design for either? Um, well, I can tell you the, the opera house note is based on whenever I'm with non-theater people, architects in a theater, the favorite view is what it looks like from the stage looking out, yes. the potential of that. And of course, opera houses have this huge machinery backstage and I would just be interested in, it, it just has so many things that I love. There's the ceremony of how to get to the seats. There's the embrace of the house. There's the ritual of the show. So hopefully someday I'll get a chance to work on that particular scale. And opening ceremonies, I, I didn't have a dream to design the Academy Awards. I'd done the theater in 2002 as an architect and was lucky enough to get a call from Bill Condon who's an extraordinary filmmaker and artist, asking about doing the Oscars in 2009. It was a chance to have a full circle experience of designing the building and then working in the building. So I think for opening ceremonies, is so much about embracing a city and how it unfolds and working with a, a director and a cinematographer. And I think it would be fun to do that in a, a totally unique, different way. Absolutely. Oh, would I love to see you do that. David Rockwell, thank you so much for making so much work that matters. Thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. David Rockwell's work can be seen on Broadway in Into the Woods and about to be seen in Take Me Out and A Beautiful Noise. You can experience all aspects of his work at the Civilian Hotel in New York City. Read about his work in his most recent book, Drama, published by Faden. And you can read all about nearly everything he's done at rockwellgroup.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.